You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. Hey, have you guys ever noticed I have to do this at the beginning of every episode? It's 15 seconds. I have to do it just right so that when I'm done talking, it ends and the theme music takes off. Do you notice now? I met Megan Fowley through Andrea Gibson. I mean, I met Megan through Instagram, through Andrea Gibson. (laughs) That's how we got connected. I started following Megan right around the time that I interviewed Andrea for this podcast. If you haven't listened to that episode, you better after you listen to this one. But that's how I got connected to Megan. And so just her presence online and her writing, uh, very glad to have made that connection. But mostly it just was social media and us following each other appreciative social media connections. I was curious to talk to Megan because of something I lived through. And so I want to say up front that the first reason I wanted to have Megan on the podcast is because I wanted to talk to her about what it's like to be in relationship to someone who has cancer and going through treatment and diagnosis and all that. It's it's actually in all the work I do with cancer, it's my closest relationship to cancer personally. And like those of you that have been listening to the show for a while, you know that's because of my mom and my mother-in-law especially. And now this like growing long list of community that I absolutely love because of the work I do with cancer patients. So so that 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 connection's grown and my learning of what it is to get a diagnosis and go through treatment with all different kinds of cancer, it continues to deepen even this week, just in the sessions I've had with cancer patients doing the workshops that I facilitate. But connecting to Megan as a possibility for being on the show, that was the first reason that I reached out and and offered the option to have her be a guest. And she was so sweetly kind about that invitation and told me she just needed to think about how she really belongs in a creatively conscious mortality conversation, like separate of her love and connection to Andrea. And I so appreciate that. And so she said, I'll get back to you. And then a couple months later, she did. And it became clear. And I'm so glad that it did because this conversation is not just that thing that compelled me to reach out. It's so much more. And so then while Andrea Gibson is woven through this conversation, being Megan's love of her life, it is also a chance for me to really deepen into my new friendship with Megan and and understanding the ways certainly Andrea Gibson's diagnosis and 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 journey in that realm has impacted Megan but then so much other great stuff so much other exploration of like where bodies meet bodies where mortal bodies meet mortal bodies i i love how 
Megan bridged that to her own story and the realization of like facing death and being in love with yourself and your body. Megan Fally is the author of three full-length collections of poetry, most recently Drive Here and Devastate Me. Once a nationally ranked slam poet, Fally has since transitioned to writing memoir and prose. Her essays and stories have won and been runners-up for several national prizes. She lives in Colorado with her main squeeze of nine years, poet Andrea Gibson. I love knowing both of these human beings. I love this new addition to my community of friends who like to have really intense and meaningfully heartfelt and fun conversations. I hope you enjoy it too. And this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Megan Fally. Um, today is a day that Andrea goes into get a blood test and we'll know in a couple of days how they're responding to treatment and everything. Uh, thus far they have been responding well to treatment, but it's still by Western standards considered an incurable cancer. And I think it, you know, it's a blood test Andrew has to get every three weeks and it's just like that day of, um, I don't know. It's just a, a way I feel like I'm holding my breath. I'm not really a big worrier. Um, I'm pretty present in terms of my uh, thoughts of what could happen in the future. I, I handle things with what's right in front of me, which is really a blessing. But on the, the day of the blood test, it feels like it it's right in front of you in this way. Mm. And um, so I'm coming into it a little, a little raw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thanks. I know we both acknowledge the first possibility of us talking that I offered up was, like I said, from getting to know you and, and your writing and, and your presence with social media and your connection to Andrea too there. But something that I feel a lot about getting to talk to you also keeping in mind there's so many places to go in the time we get to share together. But one of the things I feel like deserves acknowledgement is the relation, your relationship to Andrea and what it means to be like the person next to the person who's going through cancer. And, and my, uh, my experience that the listeners all know, and, and maybe you picked up on listening to Andrea's episode, um, is is, is it's very familiar position for me, not just because of my work that so much of the hours I spend in the week is with community that I care about deeply, like I'm community with, not like I'm a facilitator that connects to a hospital program, but also my mom and my mother-in-law and, and being alongside my mother as early as 13 and just feeling, knowing what you're describing is the like, the test that's coming up, you know, and what it means to like be in proximity to that with someone that like essentially is our heart outside of us. Um, and so it matters a lot just to acknowledge that and, and know that's how you're here. Yeah. Early on, uh, I noticed that I kept saying we're recovering or, uh, we're doing chemo or we're healing up or, you know, after the hysterectomy or like out. And I, it, I kept speaking, like conflating Andrea and I's body. And mm. I would just notice these weird slip ups into language. Um, 
it was it was really strange. So I do think, yeah, the the heart outside the body really makes sense to me. Mm. Did you have to consciously do you feel that you had to consciously stop using that language or do you kind of still do that? Was there a moment when that shifted? What actually happened for me more was I realized that I kept conflating our bodies, but only offering care to Andrea's body. I felt like I became, or I was just such a, a steward over their health. Um, a lot of, you know, in terms of I was making all their food and trying to put weight on them and uh, just everything that, you know, would have to go through. And all I wanted was to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it made me feel good to be able to, you know, give a massage or anything that would help. But in the process of saying our body or, or I love your body, I want to keep it here. Mm-hmm. And then realizing I wasn't giving that same devotion to myself. Mm. Uh, that was more, even more of a wake up call than being like, oh, I should stop taking on their body and instead, or stop conflating it. My thought was rather if I'm going to conflate it and treat us as one, then I can't mm. ignore this other half. Mm. Yeah. Oh, do you, <laughs> yeah, you shared some words about that already with me. And I, I just think that is just so uniquely powerful and just such a significant moment. Um, like nothing I've ever heard before. And I know there's like lots to get to on the other side of it, but I want to stay with that for a second. Do you, do you remember like, how did that occur? You know, what, when was that moment when you, was it a realization suddenly? Was it slow understanding? Was, did, did Andrea like highlight it for you at any moment? Like what, what happened? How did that happen? So Andrea is 13 years older than me. Um, they have a, background of chronic Lyme disease. And the timeline this was happening was a couple of weeks post-radical hysterectomy. uh, They had cancer. They were on chemo uh, and a slew of other medicines. And Andrea had a ton more energy than I did. Mm. And that Mm. like took me back a little. I'm like, what's going on? This doesn't feel right. I was 32 Mm. at the time. And one thing that I was also helping with was taking Andrea's blood pressure. And so we'd do it every day and report back to the nurses and just, you know, how they were responding to whatever post-surgery I can hardly remember. Uh, And the machine would light up and if it was green, it meant you were good and healthy. And so Andrea's was green every day. And one day I was just like, Hmm, I'm going to put this around my own arm. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I did, and it shot up to this bright orange color, which was one shade away from call your doctor immediately. Mm. And it stunned me Mm. um, that I could just be in this new field where constantly at the doctors, constantly at, you know, natural oncologists and all these different (laughs) woo-woo type doctors and everything you could do to support a person's body. And they had all of these, you know, strikes against them that you would think Mm -hmm. 
the, the um, any machine would give them the orange, but it was giving me the orange, and it yeah, that was the moment for me. Oh my gosh! I mean, yeah. what's so wild to me about that, Megan? And I feel this. This is like maybe the first time I've said this for sure on the podcast. But like, what it means to facilitate the cancer patient workshops? How I'm kind of constantly like, am I? taking care of myself enough? Like, do I need to stop eating so much sugar or whatever long list of things I'm doing to the, my body that maybe would result in, in, you know, me suddenly having a health crisis. Um, but what just seems so startling to me is that it wasn't, it was like literally a machine you, you actually use. I, I just cannot believe that that's exactly how it transferred over in a moment like that. That's wild. I couldn't argue with it. Mm-mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know part of mine is like, I'm getting heady, right? Cause I start to be like, oh my gosh, you just get up in your head. And, and this is like, no, definitively you were seeing things outside of you that were pointing to what, what are you doing? Like, how are you taking care of yourself? Yeah. Or how are you, yeah. How are you loving your body? Mm. Exactly. And I think there was also a, a shift in my mindset where mortality felt like it moved into our home in a way that we weren't, we weren't living with that particular guest before, you know, Mm -hmm. as I think most Americans, uh, pretend in some way have to block that out, uh, to get through, I guess. And I think that's a, a crisis of our culture, but when it moved in, mortality, capital M, I'm like picturing it and everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought like, I want, I want to live. I want you to live, Andrea. I want to live. I want you to have a body. I want to have a body. Mm. And then if I want this body, doesn't that kind of mean that I love this body? <laughs> And it was sort of a switch up for me of uh, my whole life. I'd been telling myself, you know, since I was nine, that I didn't love this body, that I didn't want this body. And then the futility of that when it was, I mean, more or less a healthy body or I could make, there were ways I could make it healthier and I knew. Mm. And I think all of that compounded Mm-hmm. And just totally shifted my world. I was, I've been writing a memoir about my body for the past, at that time, I think it was, since the beginning of the pandemic, and this was like July 2021 or something. Mm-hmm. So I'd been writing for it for a couple of years. And um, I, as a, I've, been on a diet of some sort or off of a diet, never just like chilling. Um, <laughs> since I was nine, yeah. I went to a children's co-ed weight loss camp for five summers. Um, my birthday is in August. Uh, and my birthday cake every summer was an apple with a candle in it. And I had just been at, at war really with it and primarily with believing that I needed to be smaller, um, but also really using food as a coping mechanism at the same time. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, I come from a line of addicts. It was never 
drugs or alcohol or anything for me, but food has always been a lullaby. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, really narcotic for me since I was a kid. And so I've been writing about my body, this long prose, like I moved from poetry because it, it wasn't enough space to tell the expanse of the story and mm-hmm. never in a million years did I think that part of the story would be that I ended up losing weight. And I know losing weight is a really sensitive, complicated topic. Uh, And I don't mean to suggest that because I was heavier, that's why I had high blood pressure or that very thin people don't have high blood pressure and are healthy or anything like that. But for me, the two were related. And in that process of trying to love my body alongside loving Andrea's, I had lost like 50 or 60 pounds and my, so then I was in this entirely new body. (laughs) Um, Mm. and it's been a freaking ride. And Mm -hmm. I've thought about how often I wanted to transform my body. And then I started thinking that it was more, my body was transforming me kind of a (laughs) cocoon, I guess, you know, Mm. that Mm -hmm. I would break open and free of it, but that the body was the thing that my spirit grew inside of. Mm. Yeah. I, I, this helps me go back to something that you said and, and I'm holding all this stuff very clearly. So I'm not letting go of any of the threads, but I think it's really, really means a lot to make a moment to, to go back to the wording you used this, this beginning of this, like, I don't know why I first was thinking it's like a trick on yourself, but it's like you used word. There was a way the words kind of got you to pay attention and say, why aren't I loving my body? Mm -hmm. You said it started with, I want you to have a body, which by the way, is just like such a beautiful sentence. It's not like, it's not like, I don't want you to die. It's, you know, it's very specific. And it's beautiful too, because I, I should be careful here. For me, it just, it reminds me like there's more of us elsewhere when we do not have a body, like there's places we'll go still. And that's what it means to me to hear that today. But, but I don't want to put that on. It may not have, it may not have meant that to you. And Andrea, no, it does. But okay. <laughs> Andrea okay. lets me know every day that uh, they're more than just their body. They check in mm. about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when that sentence came into being, the, the like, I want you to have a body sentence? I, I don't know, but now there have been so many sentences. <laughs> oh my God. A really? Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> Between yeah. the two of you? Between two writers, for sure. How is that possible? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I... Uh. I remember, if I can just tell you about some other sentences, I remember Mm -hmm, Andrea and I were walking down the reservoir with our dogs and this woman was coming toward us on the horizon and she had like this incredibly long silver hair. And as we approached, um, you know, she, you could tell she'd spent a lot of time in the sun and she was 
uh, probably in her mid late eighties. And Andrea just gasped, like we just walked past a supermodel and said, that's exactly what I want to look like. How gorgeous it is to be 80. And now I have this experience. If I hear people like ragging on their wrinkles or whatever it might be, I'm like, Mm. I'm anti anti aging. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And I mean, of course, we're living in a society, especially for women, there's so much pressure to be eternally young. And I think it's really challenging not to conform to that pressure. I'm not. Um, passing judgment for anyone who does. But I think if you can at the same time hold how gorgeous it is to be 80, uh, Mm -hmm. it just flips the perspective a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I understand why people don't want to get old and die. You know, it's like, so I understand how, why people wouldn't want to, would result in them doing whatever they can to not have to do those things. And I mean, we're talking anti-aging, right? Be like anti-aging cream, but we know it goes as far as to say like billionaires freezing their bodies and, (laughs) you know, trying to end death. But so it's, I understand it. And like, what, what a beautiful thing to just revel in. the eventuality mm-hmm. and, and to like fall in love with it instead of, instead of stay in the fear of it, you know, that, that there could be even maybe both a little bit too, you know? Well, another thing Andrea said to me was, you know, they'd lost their hair, their eyelashes, their eyebrows, and Andrea's hair was kind of iconic. Uh, you know, they were, they could be recognized by their hair. You know, yeah. hordes of young queer people have probably brought Andrea's picture into the barber and said, like this, please. This, totally. <laughs> and I was, I think, making a joke one night and saying, you know, do you miss your iconic hair? And mm-hmm. Andrea paused and said, as they are a very deep thinker and sometimes I'm making a joke and then they're just profound, (laughs) but they said, yeah, yeah, so annoying. (laughs) Totally. They said, you know, Meg, I just want to have a body. I don't care what it looks like. Mm. And I mean, talking to Andrea, there's just the understanding maybe you could, you could speak to this, but that that's like a stage of being alive Mm -hmm. that maybe it wasn't always that clear, but certainly the last few years, especially, and maybe even, I feel like when we talked the Lyme disease too, is a part of that, right? This like thing that's chronic that makes you just wish for whatever version of a healthy, alive body you can have wanting to acknowledge the things we go through like this, you know, so crystal clear perspective on what we can have at all. What can we have, you know, how much of it (laughs) and how long? Yeah. I feel like too, Megan, you're all just, like you said, two writers (laughs) having many, many piles of sentences between you, um, like writing together, 
you know, and I'm not asking if you do, but I'm just feeling that like you, you both writing this life, this relationship together. It's just, it just, just feels important for me to like acknowledge it in that way. It feels like really beautiful and that there may be even be times like, I don't remember who wrote that line. That does happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that totally happens. And I think writing just has always been how I can articulate the world around me in a way that I can understand and also have the power to make it beautiful. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking when you said, I've been writing a book about my body since, you know, 2021, I feel like I was wanting to jump in and say, you've been writing a body maybe since you were nine years old. I'm wondering like how far back were you processing stuff around apples with candles in them? And, you know, some of these like stories that I've read, you know, you, you shared with me about you in relationship to your body and weight loss or weight, you know? And by the way, can I just say real quick, Megan, I both, I really want to say, I appreciate you acknowledging like body image, like what it means to be fat, that like some people's bodies, people that are thin have high blood pressure. And I just, I want to take your lead, uh, obviously on so much of this part of your story, because like, I don't know, I don't want to assume that you going to camp was all bad. And I don't want to assume it wasn't what you needed. And I don't want to assume that it was, was maybe bad. (laughs) Like, you know, that, that maybe it was like not great all the time, you know, and, and mess with your head or whatever. And so I just want to say, like, I'm trying to come in like fully open to you kind of leading me through that. And I guess I'm just like, that's how I should, that's how any, (laughs) that's how any interviewer should be. But I'm also kind of simultaneously acknowledging what you already did, which is there's so much about this stuff, you know? in the world. And so I really want to like be with yours here and, and learn, you know, from you obviously totally about it. Yeah. I think with the camp and I, I, the only thing I'm really a fundamentalist about is nuance. Um, the only thing mm-hmm. I'm like, we got to do this all the time is try to have nuance. <laughs> yeah, <great. laughs> uh, And for me, I don't think, I don't think that that camp should exist. Okay. And they were the best summers of my lives, of my life. Mm-hmm. I would have had a hard time surviving without them. And I think a lot of it was the common denominator being established that all of us there were fat to whatever degree. And therefore we were allowed to be and become other things. Sarcastic mm. or... <laughs> bubbly or dramatic or whatever. We just, we New, weren't nuanced. just pigeonholed yeah. Yeah, yeah. or nuanced. <laughs> but I do think one of the issues and to tie it back into death <laughs> um, is that I, here we go. Uh, <laughs> I totally learned to not trust my body in any way. Mm. I thought I I needed to be put in something, I mean, akin, I don't want to say akin to a prison. It's not akin to a prison, but there's a fucking gate and you can't get out and Mm. there's no food coming in besides what they can do. And you have like forced exercise and 
counselors and people watching your every move and checking you to make sure you're not a candy smuggler with a black market candy business or whatever you're mm. watched and wait Megan, wait wait would that happen <laughs> i had a friend who actually i'm pretty sure she got into harvard business school for her essay on running a black market candy business at oh my camp, gosh so and and the wasted ingenuity of us you know mm. that how smart we were and how we were applying it just to food or manipulating the body or the arithmetic of bulimia or exercise bulimia or whatever that could be. Mm-hmm. But I, I disassociated from my body so completely. So I didn't know I was queer until much later in life because I loved who my brain told me to love, mm-hmm. um, who media told me to love. I, whenever I've done therapy, that's like, where do you feel that in your body? I'd be like, what? Mm. (laughs) And I would just totally zap out of the room. Um, I didn't always trust my intuition. Um, and we were at, I'd like to call the, uh, the oncologist we were seeing at the time, Doogie Hauser, because she <laughs> I was like, how is this such a tiny young person responsible yeah. for the most important person doctors. of my life? Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I would just dub her Doogie. Um, but not in her face. She was <laughs> no, no, I don't think she would have liked that. No. <laughs> but, uh, but Andrew is the complete opposite. So they're, they could tell you what their left toenail is feeling, like Mm -hmm. what's happening in their finger webbing. They've just always been almost on hyper alert of their body, which I think is probably a trauma response too, just in the other direction. But yeah. So Doogie was saying to Andrea, Oh, you are the most, um, in tune with your body patient I've ever had. Um, and thank God, because if you hadn't been so hyper aware, we would have maybe caught this later and it would have been inoperable. Mm. And I was, that hit me to think, okay, so we in this culture largely separate women from their bodies. Could (sighs) I have had these same symptoms as Andrea and ignored them because Mm -hmm. I was a floating brain? Wow. Yeah. I totally relate. A lot of things mess yeah. me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I realized yeah. that so much was like the, it, it's felt like um, the floors just kept getting taken out from under me mm. in beautiful ways. Yeah. Or maybe they weren't beautiful and I'm just a writer. <laughs> no, <who's laughs> you're right. You make them. I'm like, here. I will yeah. make you beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good book title. Usually around this time in the episode, I encourage you to rate and review the show. And and I'm doing that still. I'm still doing that. But what I want to do right now is I want to acknowledge those of you that have rate and reviewed the show since the last episode. A couple of you. I'm highlighting you. First of all, Ash12447 on Apple Podcasts. Title, so grateful, five stars. So grateful for this podcast. 
It's brought me so much solace and comfort during my grief and connected me to so much that has been so supportive. I've laughed, I've cried. Highly, highly recommend. Thank you, Ash12447. And then Nishamad5213. Medicine for the soul, five stars. And then five more stars. I didn't know you could do emojis in your, your review. You're Going to Die offers a beautifully crafted container where one can delve deep into the complexities of mortality and the fragility of life. In a world that often shines away from such profound conversations, You're Going to Die stands out as a comforting refuge. Here, vulnerability is not only welcomed, but celebrated, allowing for genuine connections and cathartic releases. This movement is more than just a dialogue about death. It's an affirmation of life and the myriad emotions intertwined with it. Truly a relief and a revelation. Thank you for sharing these gifts with our world. (laughs) Oh man, am I having a hard week and did I need that review? Thank you, Nishama5213. And one more. Okay, maybe two. This is Montera Mama. I look forward to each new episode. Five stars. I know that on Thursdays there will be another episode, and I'm always happy about that. I'm happy because I know I will find laughter, tears, wisdom, and comfort as Ned converses with each new guest. A shout-out also to the wonderful music of Nick Jana. I'm always excited to see what he picks as accompaniment to the episode, and somehow it's always the perfect choice. Whether acoustic, guitar, or a keyboard-based piece, it always complements the topic and provides a peaceful respite to take it all in or to just breathe for a priceless moment of calm. I can't recommend this treasure of a podcast highly enough. Listen to it. You'll be glad you did. And then last, SDWGG says, amazing, five stars. So, so, so good. Thank you all for those reviews. Those of you that are listening that haven't gone into your podcast app and rate and review the show. Listen, I might read your review on an episode, okay? So do it for that. If you want to hear me feel so much love and gratitude for you by reading your review back to you, then go into Apple Podcasts right now. You can also go into Spotify and leave comments, but use whatever podcast app you're using and rate and review the show. You know what? You'll be glad you did. Totally. I and I've been thinking about this so much. I've oddly I don't have children. I have no intention of ever having children. I think that's a ghost ship life. Um, but I've been listening to parenting podcasts, trying to understand. Oh this. yeah. Cool. And the, my sort of origin story is I was nine years old. Um, and my uncle, uh, I was feeling beautiful. I remember exactly the dress I was wearing. Mm. Um, it was from kids R us. It had these roses on it. It looked like watercolor. Um, and I remember feeling so beautiful and he pointed at me and said, you're getting a real pot belly over there, aren't you? And I like looked around and was shocked. And for so many years, I would have said that that was my origin story of where Mm. that began. But I was in a 
uh, group therapy and we had this assignment where we could reenact a moment of an early trauma and we could pick other women in the group to stand in. So I picked someone to be my uncle, someone to be my father, someone to be my mom. Mm. I played myself. We reorganized the room. So it looked like the room I was in. We wheeled a TV in. there was a couch, um, everything. And I told them, you know, what to say. And the second, the woman, my, uh, proxy uncle said, you've got a real pot belly. I instantly turned to look at her. But what I realized, I didn't look at her. I looked to my mom and I realized that was exactly what I did when I was a kid. And my mom looked at me like the worst thing had happened. And I think that that was the actual wound. And my mom loved me more than as much as any mom has ever loved a kid. I had never, ever had a filament of doubt about it. Um, but she, it was like when a kid falls yeah. and they look to their parent to confirm the damage. And I, I knew it was true based on her reaction. And so that was the wounding, I think, mm. because if your parent, my uncle, who cares, but your parent is like your safety barometer in a way, your yeah. barometer for the world. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I thought, I don't know what she could have said. Like, what was she supposed to say? He's an idiot or like, shut up. We don't yeah, say it, whatever. I'm already, like, and yeah, I'm already what trying I, to imagine. Yeah. What I have learned from this woman and I, oh, I wish I, I'm going to have to get back to you on the name. I've been listening to uh, Dr. Becky Kennedy's podcast called Good Inside. Uh -huh. And she had this woman on recently mm. and um, she wrote a book. I think it's called Fat Talk. And basically if somebody comments on somebody's body or their fatness around her, um, if it, or a child says something, she responds and says, you know, people come in all different shapes and sizes and colors. And isn't that amazing? And wouldn't it be boring if we all looked the same? Mm. And it just takes the stinger out of mm -hmm. it. And I know you don't know I, if it would have taken the sting out of that moment. But when you heard that for the first time on maybe a episode of this podcast, did it speak to that nine-year-old? I think I knew, I think there's something to be said that of the culture that's created in your home. So I would have, I'm sure, dealt with the culture outside, but my home life being a reflection of the culture, I think was probably the more damaging part that I couldn't return to this place that said, you know, honey, our family doesn't think like that mm -hmm. or our family doesn't see the world that way or here we celebrate your body no matter what and your body is a tool for you to live through and have fun and dance and what can your body do and let's not just think about how it looks yeah uh i think that is important to come home to mm -hmm. and i don't know but I, I really did in that therapy moment realize it wasn't about my uncle it was and my mom had never said anything about my body until that point. But then 
the elephant in the room was named and it became a problem to be fixed. And she was going to do whatever she could to help me not feel the pain of it all that was inflicted upon the world. And the answer was to solve the body, not to solve how we thought about the body. Mm. Yeah. And she was doing the best she could. Yeah. 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 That's important. Yeah. I mean, that's what I want to say too. When I, when I'm so inclined to like bring up my parenting stuff, it's, it, it is true. I really do feel that way. Um, like them doing the best that they could do and, and just like projecting and like coming out of their own relationship to body and the culture and shit that's been put upon them. Um, doesn't mean we don't have just a ton of things to like work with and work through because of how some of the parenting goes. But I really appreciate that acknowledgement. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, I'm sure it's the hardest job in the oh world, my gosh. especially if you want to do a good job. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you especially want to do a good job. if you care even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Yeah. It's not hard if you just don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> I mean, in a way <laughs> that's really true. Or if you go into it thinking, you know how to do it right. Mm. If you don't go into it with like a ton of panic about how to not mess up your kid. For yeah, life. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I said this earlier and I, I'm wondering about, I'm, I'm wanting to return to it because I, I also asked you in my usual fashion, five questions at once. Um, what did I answer? None of them. No, you answered all of them except this one that I started with, which was the writing back then and, and through, you know, the, to return to what I said, it's the, when you said I've been writing a book about my body since 2021, my thing that jumped into my head was you've been writing a body since you've, you've been writing a body, you've been writing a body since, uh, you were nine, maybe, maybe you've been doing that totally. kind of, yeah. Is that true? Yeah. My mom used to say if I like came home in tears or crying, um, you know, those are the same thing. <laughs> Well, if you're in here, we can just I edit. <laughs> I want to keep it. You may be in tears like a bowl of them. Or you're crying them out of your eyes. <laughs> it's different. Anyway, okay, so you, <laughs> you came home and cried. Yeah. yeah, she used to say if, I, if I'd come home crying, she'd ask if I wanted to talk about it, and I would say, no, I want to write about mm. it. And I think, though, I had for a while so much body shame that I didn't want to write about it because I didn't want to point it out. Uh, I didn't want, I wasn't ready for anyone else to look at me. And I think I thought if it went unnamed, you know, maybe it wouldn't be true. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of my writing for a long time was more, you know, love stories or, or a projection of something that I wanted maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the first time that I really wrote about my body was this poem called fat girl, which is a really empowered, um, poem about, uh, it just repeats the word fat girl over and over and over. And it's a really celebratory anthemic poem about my body. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a short sort of shift in my career. That poem got a lot of attention. And then I sort of started being labeled 
as a body positive poet, mm. um, which was interesting because I was definitely faking it till I made it sort of. Yeah. Uh, but, but poetry spoken word is such an interesting art form and kind of writing because you're in a way objectifying yourself. I mean, especially to read about the body, you're putting yourself on stage, you're saying, look at me. And then slam is a competitive art form where there are judges with scorecards. So then you're also saying, judge me mm -hmm. and I'm standing here to be judged. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was like a rebellion art form for me, but and that's, yeah, that was how I spent so many of my years. Yeah. And did you, you've told me that you've kind of moved away from slam and, and sounds like books of poetry, but this book that you're working on is the focus of your creative endeavors. Now, do you feel like some of what you just described is partly why you moved on from some of that, uh, that particular kind of writing? Or maybe that's wrong. I Did I just put words happens, in your mouth? Have you moved no, on? Yeah. No, not at all. Okay. I, I've completely fallen in love with prose. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's interesting to bring it back to the body is in a way it feels like uh, I'm buttoning my pants or yeah. <laughs> taking my bra off. I'm like, whoa, I can just like yeah. get out of the seams of this. Uh -huh. But I think, I think especially competitively, it can be really hard for it to be a nuanced art form because you have a three minute time limit and you really want to pack a punch and make a big point right away. And another thing happened, it happens just as you have random judges assigning numerical value to art that it wouldn't necessarily be for the art, mm -hmm. but for the story that was told. And because of that, the pain so what would score sort of highest was often the most pain. Yeah. And I found myself being somebody who looked for the pain in my life, who sometimes amplified the pain for a score, mm -hmm. for attention, for people to like me more. And I just came out of that haze at some point knowing this is, it's an incredible art form. I don't want to say anything yeah, yeah. Um, negative about spoken word, especially, and Andrea has managed to do it in the most nuanced, you know, beautiful way. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't like who it was making me become as a person or as an artist. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily like what it was making of the people around me either. Yeah. Um. I so love that revelation and knowing, I think, you know, really, well, I'll just say that much of what we do, like why I'm talking, you started with an event that we're doing tonight actually in San Francisco, but it's an open mic and it's a space for people to share grief and loss and talk about death and dying and mortality. That's, that's where it began was the open mic space. And re in the last couple of years at one conversation with someone on the podcast where it came up and really crystallized this for me, like the trauma competition, you know, like the risk for that with community. And so then like the endeavor to like wallow or bury ourselves in it and sent like that makes sense because what is getting attention is especially if we're good at writing um, and performing uh, it's like how we're excavating the hard stuff. And boy, I think there's something really valuable in that. And like, it can be risky, like you said, you know, where suddenly 
you're maybe over identifying yourself with this pain and suffering and and then maybe like that's who you are more in the world than anything else and like for sure now what matters for me hearing you say that is like the feeling I have like I said in therapy today that like I want to make space for this stuff but I don't want to feel like all this all the time like I want to be happy and joyful and celebratory and I can make good room for sadness and grief and trauma and broken hearts but like that's not the main way I want to feel while I'm in my life I Agree. And I think particularly watching Andrea's response, especially how they wrote about it or uh, how they responded to cancer. I mean, arguably they could really win the trauma Olympics <laughs> Yes, uh, and Andrea's response. And then mine probably in response to Andrea's mm-hmm. uh, was to gravitate far more toward joy and appreciation and awe and we'd have I've had so many moments where people have asked me how I am and I've I've said honestly Andrea and I have had the best two years of our life together (laughs) we've had so much more joy and love between us and it's been so incredible and we you know sing Shania Twain's you're still the one to each other <laughs> like what I can't believe it and we're so you know yeah. attracted to each mm-hmm. other and just in love and people will say yeah but you know like you're allowed to feel like it sucks I'm like I know I'm allowed to feel <laughs> yeah. like it sucks but what it's almost this pressure um, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, there, the culture's got that pendulum swing. You know, I really think that that's what maybe the work I do risks. And I've talked about this kind of regularly, especially especially with people who facilitate. Like, I just talked to Prentice Hempel, you know, in a recent episode, and that came up there. It was like, what does it mean to make room, enough room for grief, and then don't like risk what we're talking about, which is end up like identifying it and being stuck in it. So you're like in the past heartbreak instead of moving forward into like joy and aliveness. Um, so yeah, everything you're saying just lands for me. You know, it's like, how much do you, how do you make enough room for that? Cause we can, like you said, yeah, I know I can be bummed. I can be sad. I can be grief stricken about this and what a thing to say. And, but by the way, a lot of what's happening is like deep love and connectedness and like celebration of each other and attraction. And, Oh, that's just so beautiful. And I love it. I just love hearing it from you. And I'm not surprised you guys both, you, it, it's felt through even like your posts and your words to each other and the list of words, your poems to Andrea. Um, I just loved reading through all those. So it's that piece of like, well, the hard stuff, like the last couple of years can make things like also simultaneously, like more deeply meaningful and beautiful. You know, this guy in San Quentin yesterday said, does it get easier? He was asking me about his mother's death last year. And I said, no, it gets more meaningful though. (laughs) And I never said that, but I feel like that's kind of what you're speaking to. It's like your relationship is more meaningful than ever. You know? I love that. Mm. I love that so much. Yeah. I think that's the work that you're, that you're doing as well, which is, 
And, you know, that might be the difference between just like presenting the trauma or the grief versus making a meaning of it versus mm. how how is this coming on my behalf or what can I share of this to make something lighter for someone else or how can we be yes. transformed by this together? And that's not, you know, I'm not going to be sad. I'm looking away. It's I'm looking at this and yeah authentically genuinely yeah yeah and i, I like that's you where said the that joy the comes stages from. yes the stages you said they're like the floor falling out from below you you're like well maybe it wasn't beautiful but what's beautiful is that you look back at those things and can write about them and do and that's the beauty like that's what you do with your writing that's what you do with your work right do you relate to that absolutely yeah yeah um Okay, so I keep going back to this nine-year-old, and you could be like, "I'm done <laughs> hanging out with them." No, she needs but attention. I wanted... <laughs> okay, great. Um, you had talked about addiction kind of being in your family, and so then that's part of how you're describing this this story of your life, at least that part in relationship with food. And I'm wondering. I'm sort of like enamored now with what we got to or, and I, I was putting words to it, like getting led to the thing that hurts by having someone in our life who could say, come look at it, come look at it with me, you know, like, and look at it this way. And I'm wondering for you, if when you say your relationship with food is connected to addiction, was there in some of the work you've done and looking back at that time and the therapy you've done, do you do you remember also, like for me, I feel like even now when I come home, like last night after San Quentin and I eat like a half chocolate bar, like a big bar, Megan, it's not a tiny bar. It's not like a little Hershey bar. It's like a big, big bar, like a baking bar, a baking chocolate. Like I eat a half of that at the end of the day and I'm not ashamed, but like I can feel myself trying to kind of like soothe and, and maybe like cover up with chocolate, like what was traumatizing and hurt from being in San Quentin, what was heartbreaking. And I'm wondering, can you speak to that at that age? Was there anything going on? And you could be like, I'm, yeah, and I'm not ready to do that with you. But like, do you feel like there were things going on in your childhood that led to the relationship with food also obviously like accented by addiction inclinations? It's such a good question. And one that I am, uh, I've been actively trying to figure out because I don't have any memory of um, some sort of, you know, early trauma or something that I can point to and say, this is mm -hmm. when it started. This is why uh, mm -hmm. I actually just got, con I recontacted my therapist. It's been several years and I decided that, um, and this is, I think the most quintessential of myself thing I've ever done, but I am going to therapy to find that, to ask that, to find that out. That's right. Because yeah. <laughs> I want to write a better book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You have to, you yes. have to look back. This is it. This is the moment. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, I could go to therapy for self-improvement and that, that feels like, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, secondhand totally. benefit, but I yeah. really, I want to get to the depth. Yeah. Right. So that this is the a really better. powerful memoir. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Self-care, think, you know, being yeah. healthy, mental health. Sure. That'd be great. But what I really want is a fucking great book. <laughs> yeah. That's and, oh, cool. that's really, that's cool. <laughs> it is really me. Um, and yeah. I guess maybe speaks to what I do as a writer, which is, okay, how can I make this a net positive? How can I make this mm-hmm. actually into a beautiful thing? And so yeah. I'll have to get back to you on what was okay. well, happening well, at the, the book, time. <laughs> when the book's published, we'll just have you yeah. back on. We'll dig, we'll dig into all that. Um, I think one thing I would love to share is that when I look back at pictures of Andrea now, when they were at the end cycles of their chemo and, you know, they, no hair, um, no color in their skin, I, those pictures come up of, on my, in my phone, you have a new memory and mm-hmm. they are, they always really jar me. And if for Andrea as well, we're like, whoa, because what happened at the time was I was not seeing, I was just seeing Andrea as beautiful as we were going through it. I, you know, we would we would walk somewhere and someone would stop and ask if they could pray for us. And it would surprise me because I wasn't even really noticing that they looked sick. And I think that for me was another revelation about what beauty means, which I think Mm -hmm. is also the question that's been at my heels my whole life. Uh, And that beauty was truly a state of being and not something you know captured in a photograph and how love such deep love and presence can put the beauty filter on mm-hmm. whatever you're looking through mm-hmm. yeah that changed my life too <laughs> much gratitude to Megan Fally for saying yes to being on the show and thoughtfully saying yes. So glad to have this conversation with you, Megan. If you listeners want to connect to Megan, go to meganfally.com. That's M-E-G-A-N Fally, like Valley, F-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And if you want to connect to Megan on Instagram, it's the same spelling. And by the way, there's a link in Megan's bio on Instagram where you can connect to Megan's prose, which she's doing a lot more of. But last thing I want to mention is that Megan's teaching an online writing course called Poems That Don't Suck. And that begins October 1st. So make sure you listener who's listening to this just as the episode comes out here in September of 2023, that you go and check out that workshop online writing course with Megan. And all of these links, my friends, are in the show notes. Nick Gina. (laughs) 
Oh my God. Wow. It feels like I just walked a desert to get to you. I want to start out by saying that I had a Spanish conversation today. You know, I've been doing these over the last couple of years, uh, just one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. Spanish conversations with natives. And today was mm -hmm. the first time I had to look up many words for uh, negative emotions to be able to properly converse with this person about like uh, devastation and confusion, you know, oh. like all, all of these things that like haven't come up. Not that I haven't been sad before, but like it hasn't been pressing enough or, and, or I haven't been close enough with these people that I felt like it was okay to go there. And, um, mm -hmm. honestly, the first hour of like 200 hours of Spanish conversation where my answer to how are you was, not good, you know, <laughs> and not just, yeah. it's funny yeah. how, like we talk about that in English about like, how do you ask, how are you and get a real answer and know that someone will answer. And mm -hmm. I was like, I'm just going to say I'm not good because like, I'm not. And like, I, we can talk about that, you know? And, and the other person yeah. wasn't good and it was nice to just talk about uh, that, you know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, to need practice in talking about how bad things are. I wonder if there's like some kind of statistical measurement for the uptick in that, uh, <laughs> that language. Cause you know, you think in class when you're in high school or even when I've taken some of these things that you're doing, um, there's just an inclination to like matter of fact, daily living, you know, yeah. learning like base words and, and those are inclined to like mostly just sort of positive framing, yeah. I guess, a little bit, mostly. Um, wow. So it was led, you were looking that up because they were feeling these things? No, no, no. I was I was about to go on, you know, like the 15 minutes uh, as I'm getting yes. ready. And I'm just like, yes. what am I going to say? Am I just going to pretend like everything's okay? And I was like, <laughs> I body check. Yeah. No, I cannot do that. You know, <laughs> I'm going to just say it. You're like, body is devastated. Yeah. Yes. And um, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. need to get into it, but like, I know, you know, like, just like, difficult times right now. And like, mm -hmm. um, the benefits of like being open about that, I I'm on the far end of the spectrum of people that are not going to say that if I ever think it's like not the right place, or I, I don't know the person enough, or I don't want to burden somebody, you know, like, but finding myself in so many situations where I'm leading a memoir writing workshop. <laughs> I'm leading a vulnerable tea service reading, you know, where it's like, well, if ever there's a place where it's okay to bring my current honest state in and talk about it, it's going to be these places, you know? Sure. Yeah. You know, I'm inclined to that. Would you say that you believe in a certain way that things are especially bad right now or hard right now? Like, do you find yourself readily crediting certain things like the planets <laughs> or retrograde or, you know, like, do you align with that our, way of thinking? Because it seems like that's kind of where things are at, right? When yeah. our friend uh, Olivia, aka LV, texts me and says, things are bad right now, capital letters bad, uh, you know, meaning with the planets, um, I take note of that. And I'm, uh, you know, like an amateur astrologer and like when when it's really needed i will look it up and just and look at it and just be like oh my god jesus christ <laughs> mm. and I, I was telling you this earlier but like it helps me I, I, the way i think of it is like we're all walking through terrain that we can't necessarily always see and sometimes that terrain is really easy like a meadow or something and we just can kind of make a lot of progress it's just easier and we're like oh i'm doing fine you know and then without yeah. knowing if you don't otherwise track these things you might suddenly be in rocky terrain with a lot of thick trees and you're like, God damn it. Why is it so hard today? You know? 
And if you're not mm. seeing that for what it is, you're going to take it a lot more personally. And I think it's just nice to be like, you're in different terrain and there, you had, there was no other way around it. Like you had to go this way. Like this, this is where you are. You, you used to walk 15 miles a day and now you're l- lucky to walk one. And that's, that's yeah. a victory today. It's different. It's yeah. not every day is the same. That perspective yeah. alone has helped me. And it's not just like people get caught up in the personal aspect of astrology, which can be helpful too. But like, it's like, we're all in this, we're all through going through difficult times and uh, yeah. some are protected in some ways and then others. But like, if you're super sensitive like us and you're dealing with like marginalized communities or, or people that are hurting, like you're going to really feel it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that would be my, my follow up to that. I'm appreciating anyone listening who needs some version of what I feel like Elfie gave you, which is the, you're in that terrain. Like we're all in that terrain right now. So just know that you're not alone and, and certainly believe in that being really valuable to remember. Um, but then I'm thinking too, for especially people out there that are like caregivers or working in mental health helpers, you know, that I, I had this moment in San Quentin yesterday that I think, you know, risks coming across a little bit defeatist, but it's something I really am feeling right now, which is when you do certain work with certain communities or you care, you know, more than most in terms of like how you put yourself forth in the world, um, empath or into it, whatever, like caring for others, you're going to see how bad it is more than most. And I, I just imagine people that are, well, I won't even talk about that. What I want to say is just to acknowledge the listener, those people that are in any of those categories, that it would make sense. You would see how hard things are more than most people, that it would seem bad to you more, you know, yeah. than, than most people. And, and that feels really important, but it's also like, how do we come to terms with that and still stay light or oak some kind of version of okay? Um, cause I do think that's the challenge for me. It is that question of, you know, I'll go through dark stuff and this last 24 hours has been a version of that. And I know it'll pass with the right amount of self care, but I don't know. I, I just wonder if there's some other way to grow in these moments to be a little free and let go a little more, but mm-hmm. I don't know right now. It just mostly was hard and it and feels hard right now. The best sentence that a friend has said to me over the last week, and I've had a lot of great friends saying helpful things, um, was just hold on to the mast. <laughs> and I've thought about that a lot. It was just like, there's times when it's not like how clever are you or how trained you are or whatever, like you're going through a storm, like just hold on to the mast. There's no guarantee everything after is going to be amazing. It's just like, hold on to the mast. And you know, like it's a version of like what doctors and nurses felt in like April, 2020. It's just like, what do you do with so many people are hurting and you're the container for that and it's overflowing and you're inundated and you don't have your resource support and everything, you know, it's just, it's going to fucking suck (laughs) and it's not fair, you know? Some people didn't have that, you know? Yeah. And, and I also appreciate the like next foot forward, which you've said, you shared, shared those words with me, you know, like when it was hard this morning, the cancer patient workshop that was had was where I needed to go. And I cried there listening to this community and it made it a little better you know, or it gave me a release that I needed. 
it didn't fix everything, but being in that vulnerability and the openness and the love and the honesty, it, I believe in that. And having our grief release tonight offered that. It was incredibly precious to be with people, how many people need to share the hard things they're dealing with and feel connected. Um, and so I believe in that. And I want you listeners to remember that you know, these words, you know, if you think about, well, what is the mass? What do we hold on to? I, I guess what I do hope is that this podcast offers a little mast for you to, to, to stay grounded and, and somehow helps you hold on. And then also the other things we offer, especially online, but for those of you in the Bay area to find the places to connect with us when we're doing our live shows, our in-person shows, but also to join us online to, to remember that you're not alone um, boy, my prayer is that this offers you that, that this podcast offers you that. I really, really, really hope it does. I wanted to ask you, because like I found myself several times in the last week, just asking myself, I feel terrible. I have to like lead three writing workshops tonight where I'm, you know, talking and like facilitate, I have to be actively listening and do all this work, you know, like, would I rather cancel them and sit just in a room without doing that? Or would I rather be in this thing? And for me, each time the answer has been like, I would rather be in the thing. Like, yeah, I feel I, better there, mostly. you know? <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's usually how I feel. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you and I tried to get, get this recording done earlier <laughs> today and, you know, it's like, there's definitely been some times where, and, and maybe, you know, maybe it's okay, but just to be like, I, I just can't, you know, but I, ha I had to do that cancer patient workshop. And I told my co-facilitator, I was like, I'm really not okay right now. And I really want to be quiet. And I was lucky. I think I'm, I'm lucky. I am lucky to have them and, and to have you and to have people who like in our grief release today, we switch it up. And I was the list person. And for those of you that have never been to our grief release, it's free on Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific every Wednesday. And we've done it since the very first week of the year. And we've never missed a week. But it's always there from 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific on Zoom. And you can check it out on our website at, at www.yg2d.com. But the list person is a person who helps kind of corral the sh people who want to share into the f lead facilitator's attention. And so, um, I did that role today for the first time. I've never done it before in all the years we've been doing these online open mics. And, and I needed to do that cause I didn't want to lead. And so, you know, I'm answering your question as I feel like, yeah, mostly I want to be in these spaces when it's hard and thank God I do work. Like I've said this before, where I can show up and be feeling exactly what I'm feeling and actually have it. Belong. Exactly. Yeah. If I, if I had a job where I had to be fake or put on a face Ooh. or something like that, that was, that would be the thing I would have to, I, that was the problem with the toy company. I would have you know, to cancel I would, it. Yeah. I would have to, I like, I couldn't yeah. do it. I mean, my mom had just, just died. I mean, the amount of times I was like in it and being the person I am, couldn't hide it. It's just a bad match. But I also want to say, and this is an acknowledgement for you just to end here, you know, like I, I am lucky that I have community that cares about me and that will respond when I am in a bad way. However alone I feel, I'm usually reminded of that. 
And so even when I have to do the thing, boy, it seems like something works out in the dynamics of that space where somebody else can kind of hold it a little more or in a different way. And it just gives me a little room where I can still be there and be offer myself into the space. But it, it it gives me a little more space like I, I needed today, like you gave me. And I'm, I'm grateful we could reconnect to get this done because this episode is a sweet one. And it matters that, you know, what doesn't happen for us is when it's hard, we don't accomplish these things that we care about because it usually makes me feel better, you know, to get to something like this and get it done with you. So thanks, Nick. Thank you. And thanks you listeners. Grateful for each and every one of your ears until next time. Bye-bye.